Technology and food have to be in the top five passions for any nerd. I'm Chris Riley, tech advocate for Splunk, SweetCode contributor, and bad coder turned dev enthusiast. I sit down to eat with techies to talk about modern technologies, careers in tech, and advancement in development practices. My employer does not own or sponsor this podcast. My thoughts are my own, and no guests were drugged or coerced during the recording. This is Developers Eating the World. Okay, this is episode 36 of Developers Eating the World, and I'm joined by Anna, who I tracked down from seeing a recent webinar. I really enjoyed your talk um, about Linkerd specifically and service meshes, but why don't you quickly introduce yourself and tell me a little bit about what you do? Um, yeah, so my name is Anna. I'm currently a systems engineer at uh, Paybase, which is a, a financial uh, uh, fintech. Uh, based in London. I've had a weird career progression uh, in which I've started in consulting and then moved into actual roles um, where normally it's the complete opposite where you start with some sort of programming um, like development roles and then you gradually go into DevOps and things like that. I think I started my career in consulting as well and move into vendors. And I've kind of ping-ponged back and forth from consulting to vendor, consulting to vendor. How, how did you get into even consulting? Like, did you get a degree in engineering? Uh, yeah, so I have a degree in computer hardware and software engineering. And um, as part of that, I did a placement here with IBM. And uh, usually at the end of it, they allow you to apply for roles, for graduate roles. And I applied for two. But um, the, it's funny, the one I really wanted, um, I didn't get, but I didn't get it because as part of the test, there was a math, math test that you had to do, oh, which wow. um, I'm good at math. I'm just not good at math under pressure. <laughs> um, so um, that's how I got into consulting. I was also um, assigned to a specific project. So it was like professional services called at the time. I just straight after graduating, I became uh, like a subject matter expert into uh, this um, tool, um, deployment tool that IBM was selling. And I was one of the people who was helping customers implement it. Um, was it Urban Code? Yeah, Urban Code Deployment. Yeah, yeah. The whole yeah. suite. Uh, actually, it's coincidental. The IBM event is going on right now, apparently. And as you would expect, I think most of the announcements are about Watson because everything, everything yeah. is about Watson. That's really cool. So, uh, and you have, even have hardware engineering experience then as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, it was just everything I've learned at uni. I didn't take it beyond that. But uh, recently, I well, my boyfriend bought a very old um, vinyl player, like one of those huge encased ones. And he, when he got home, he realized it wasn't working. So I had to go at fixing it, and that was fun. <laughs> but apart from that, I don't really do much with hardware. I, I thought you were going to tell me that you like turned it into a server or something. <laughs> um, it didn't have the computing power to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. So the the webinar that was done um, was a CNCF webinar, and your session was on service meshes. So the evolution of consulting all the way now into DevOps. How did you get into the DevOps realm? Uh, so uh, by virtue of working uh, with like um, Urban Code Deploy, that that was already 
the beginning of DevOps as it was marketed. Uh, I was uh, specializing in this tool, but also learning all of the, the, the ways in which like DevOps works and what, what does it mean to, to do DevOps, which to this day, it's just weird to say it because we all know it's just a framework uh, and, and a buzzword uh, word as well. And um, after IBM, I went to another consulting company to Contino, uh, which you mentioned you worked with as well. Yeah. And um, that's where I started working with um, AWS. After Contino, I was on a, on a specifically unpresent project. And um, I realized that maybe consulting is not specifically uh, what I want to do because um, I found that you're not treated very nicely. So I, I think if you're a contractor, it's fine because then you, you don't care. You just detach yourself. You get the big bill at the end and you just detach yourself. You do the work and you go home. But um, I turned out to be someone who cares a lot about many things to do with work. Um, so um, one of the amazing engineers I was working with at the time um, has told me that I should really apply for a startup and try to go into a full-time role. The whole introduction to DevOps started with IBM and Urban Code. And then from there, I took it into different concepts and technologies that um, seemed interesting to me at the time. Well, in FinTech even, which, you know, my bias towards FinTech is that they generally are behind, but I know that that's not true anymore because you, they, in order to compete, you have to like embrace ways to get applications out faster? Well, I think they're totally behind in terms of in financial services in general. I've worked with a lot of uh, like customers, a lot of banks where they would just try to, I remember specifically on one of the projects that I was, uh, we're trying to implement AWS and move them from like uh, traditional infrastructure into AWS and their way of doing it was by whitewashing everything and locking in loads of things that they're there because you can use them and yeah uh, so i think you're still right in terms of your preconception however there are uh, companies out there um we would be one of them i think monzo stripe and quite a few yeah. others that are just using really good technologies and are trying to you know do good things and um, our company came about because there wasn't a product that would cater to our previous company, uh, which needed a payment services provider at the time. Yeah, and that's not an easy area. I know, especially for like SaaS-based applications, it's um, it's very challenging. I worked for a startup where you know we were a subscription-based application and managing subscriptions and cancellations and all that stuff is very. It's a pain. It's a huge pain. So one of those technologies is service meshes and i have to admit it hasn't clicked in my head yet fully the value of service meshes can you give me like the 101 what is a service mesh and why would you use it right okay so uh, so i guess the reasons why service meshes are such in vogue right now is because most companies are moving towards a microservices based architecture which means rather than having one super bulky application, um, you split it into small components that talk to each other, and that's how you deploy our application. Now, the issue with that is that when your components 
have to talk to each other and are deployed. You have to make sure that uh, there's a dependency tree and um, you have visibility what's, or what's running and what's not, if there's a bug or if there isn't in one of the, uh, the, the components of your microservices application. And when you have uh, hundreds of microservices that make up your application, it's really hard to keep on track of all of them. So the easiest way to think of service meshes would be to think of uh, the tech that you apply on top of microservices to give you visibility on what's happening. So for example, both Linkerd and Istio um, have um, like, uh, UIs in, in which you can see how each, uh, each uh, component of your microservices application is connected to what. So it gives you a tree of what's connected to what. So is it the actual communication or is it the, is it the visibility? So it's both. So the visibility is um, something that many companies need. We found that, you know, if you're running everything on top of Kubernetes, um, it's, it's quite easy to get that visibility without the service mesh. But then the communication between them is also very important. And that's the other thing that service meshes give you. And um, also secure communication, so uh, mutual TLS. Um, but then there's another caveat, which is what was a thing that was talked about a lot in that webinar, is that on Kubernetes, if you choose um, for your services to talk to each other via gRPC, uh, gRPC is not scalable by default. So, um, so what I mean by that is that if I have component A of my application and I want two versions of that component, if I'm running them in Kubernetes, the gRPC connection is long lived. When I'm uh, load balancing to component A, once that connection was uh, created, that stays long lived. So the other the other copy of the component A never gets traffic. Right. It it makes sense. In in what where you helped me was bringing to the surface the application level visibility, whereas I was kind of just dwelling on the communication and thinking, well, you can communicate between services in, in various ways. It, it's more the system of communication. And now you're talking about the nuances of you know, the, the technologies that are instrumented and in, in the challenges there. Two episodes back, I think it was Ali, or I forget who it was I talked to, was talking about Teeny Tarny um, RPC. Right. <laughs> and, and so, you know, this is, a lot of this stuff is not stuff that, engineers really want to think about, I think. Um, but now we have to because we are building microservices and we have to make things communicate in a scalable, like you said, a scalable way. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to continue to deploy uh, in, that, in that method. There's a few other things there's, uh, that gives you, that uh, something like Linkerd or Istio gives you. You also get tracing and uh, monitoring with Prometheus as well. And also um, uptime, and other metrics that can be used um, to, to understand how your application is right. performing as well. Yeah, it's the ecosystem of components that you have to bolt on to Kubernetes is pretty, pretty amazing. When did you far, first start working with Kubernetes? Was it back in consulting or? At Continuo, I had my first taste of Kubernetes where um, I did a small Ivan Pedraza. I don't know 
mm-hmm. if you know him, he's quite pr- prominent in the in the whole world. Soon after the when I joined Paybase, everything that they were running was on Kubernetes only, and I was the only when I joined I was the only systems engineer, like DevOps engineer, on the company. So I went from knowing the basics of Kubernetes to and you're in charge of running Kubernetes in production. It was quite a challenge, but um, it, it was a lot of fun and it was a great way to learn as well. So one part of actually going from consulting, even though it's it's quite jarring because it is two different modes of operation. And I remember a lot of times when I was brought in as a consultant, yeah, you're kind of brought in as the person to blame sometimes, which is not <laughs> is not all that much fun. And then if you're the most junior in your in a team, you will definitely be the person to blame, even when you are not at fault. I mean, the nice thing moving into a tech company is that you know you're you're part of something that you're building and and growing. But I'd say you know like you bring a ton of skills to an organization now, knowing Kubernetes, knowing DevOps. So you have the tactics, you have the the methodology, which is you know nobody when you go to get a computer science degree, they don't teach you the principles and methodologies in the business of doing development. And those soft skills matter a lot too when when developing your career, um, right? Um, yes, so um, that's something that I have IBM to be grateful for because they, they were doing uh, great consulting training for all of the people that, uh, all of the graduates that were in the consulting division. I remember it was uh, four weeks of just doing training and then you get through some really hard tasks in which um, uh, you do a lot of role playing and you pretend that you're on this project and you're just coming off from university and you find yourself being told you haven't done something right and you need to fix it and they would always do those kind of activities much more harder than how the real world is but that's a good exercise to get prepared but apart from the soft skills, which I think are important for anyone to have, uh, what I got from consulting that was really useful in into Paybase was uh, being exposed to really big companies um, and seeing the good ways in which they do things, but also all of the, the bad ways in which they just became dinosaurs and they cannot find a way out of it because of the complexity of their applications and all of that, that teaches you to ask how anything will scale. So from the beginning, you're always thinking of the the bigger picture. Scale is not a trivial thing to address. And, and And if addressing it means that you have to basically refactor large portions of your application, that could be almost too overwhelming for some companies to to even embrace. So it I it when I used to hear that before, you know, it, even in like angel pitches or VC pitches that I've been a part of, and they're like, they ask the question, can this scale? And I'd always kind of roll my eyes like, nah, that doesn't, you know, that of course it can scale. You know, you kind of just assume that that's true. But then when you hit that wall, you it's a very painful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So tell me, you know, what are what are some of the things that you're interested in and excited about in the DevOps movement in the DevOps space right now? Well, I guess to me, the term DevOps doesn't mean much other than, you know, you're automating and you're trying to do things 
as fast as possible and deliver to customer, get feedback and all of that. So, so if I am to take your question and sort of apply it to cloud native uh, computing and all of their tools. Um, so some of the things that excite me and I'd really want to get more involved into is, well, first of all, is security because so the whole Kubernetes project it has a lot of security holes, especially if you are uh, hosting it on um, your own hardware rather than using a managed service, something like Google Cloud, uh, Kubernetes Engine or um, the AWS. Um, so, uh, so there's a lot of security gaps uh, with uh, Kubernetes, but also with containers. And that's something that I'm interested in and it excites me in a way. And something that I had the chance to sort of look into, but I haven't yet advanced much with is uh, intrusion detection. So I'm hoping I'll have a chance in the future to work with that, but also the idea of chaos engineering and just, just being able to break things um, into a production system and see how they behave is also very exciting to me. And um, with that, I did play a bit with, but uh, na nothing serious yet. But yeah, yeah, those are the things that I'm personally interested in uh, yeah. gaining more experience with. I think the fact that it's called chaos engineering doesn't do it justice because senior leadership in technical organizations will stop at the word chaos. You know, it's not, it's not fair. It's actually the opposite of chaos. It's preventing well, chaos in, in a sense. Well, it's more like seeing how your system behaves when it's chaos, learning from it and then making changes so that right. uh, you're ready for that. When you say like management would think when, when you hear something like chaos, you sort of run away. Do you, there's a lot of companies out there that have um, managers that don't have, don't necessarily work with the tools that their employees work with. So then they don't understand them fully. Do you think that should be the case? I'm big on this idea of value stream. Its job is essentially to do exactly that, which is deliver insights based on all this crazy DevOps, chaos engineering, all this stuff that modern development teams are doing, but tie it to the business. Right. Um, and so communicate in the ways that, it, that leadership and executives want to be communicated to. And that's the thing. I mean, you unfortunately, you have to do it. And I don't well, see that changing. Change, and especially the kind of change that you need to implement all of these um, great practices only happens if it's ported for high up. So as soon as um, a manager comes and says, you know what, let's push that and let's concentrate on this priority, on this thing that is burning. Uh, you you start pushing those things aside. One of the most um, drastic examples of this that I feel has never gotten justice is the, the area of testing in the process of CI/CD. So functional testing, you know, all all means of testing and chaos engineering is interesting because it does kind of get into that realm of idea of continuous testing and so forth. And real change only is seen to come, unfortunately, when something really bad happens. <laughs> and, yeah. then, and then everything gets reprioritized. And that's, I think that it does go back to what we were saying before and, and where your experience matters a lot is kind of 
seeing ahead of the technology a little bit such that you you know to communicate it and how to communicate it because without socialize without techies being an advocate and socializing internally it becomes very difficult and like i said quality assurance engineers classically are not good at promoting what they do and why they do it and unfortunately that has to be kind of part of your job yeah 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 uh, <laughs> there's one thing that i've learned from consulting is that you're selling and the product is you yeah. and no like that's the case for everything and that's the case even for interviews and recently i've actually i was looking at a few of the people that got laid off and i was surprised to know that people that i've worked with that were really hard workers really good people to work with haven't found roles meanwhile other people that are really good at selling themselves but not so good technically uh, yeah. they got the job straight away it comes down to that to you need to sell yourself yeah and there there was recently a book i i listened to because i think this matters also the difference between givers takers and matchers takers it's obvious you know they they are always they're always working to build their themselves up in, in at the cost of others that always catches up with people i've always seen that catch up with people yeah yeah, yeah. um matchers try to get a 50 50 split so you know quid pro quo um, I do this, you do that. Like they always kind of keep a mental calculation of who are we on track with each other? Are we jiving? And then givers are the ones who are always trying to educate their peers, especially, you know, more junior people. Um, we'll give them, we'll pass over the kudos and deliver accolades on somebody else's behalf if they don't do it, which is great. And I believe that that is the appropriate way. But the challenge there in the nuance is that you have to not be overt and blatant about your successes, but you do need to acknowledge them with the team in a, in a very direct and incredible way. Um, at the same time, you shouldn't also be bragging. Like you should move on and you should tend to use the term we instead of I. Um, but it is important to to showcase what you've done. It, it matters. What you mentioned about using we rather than I or me and is something that we've uh, done at Paybase. And I, I personally actually enjoy um, thanking people and recognizing people mm -hmm. um, publicly because, I don't know, I like... I like people. Sounds weird. <laughs> <laughs> I hope um, it's weird. <laughs> I like communicating with people, and um, sometimes you get you get really positive energy just from having a very intellectually stimulating conversation. Yeah, I think it took me a long time because a, a lot of these efforts are long tail efforts. I definitely, when I was younger, was guilty of using I and talking about. Uh, anything that I delivered as like a work product is something that I did. And I made a conscious effort to switch from that. And I realized very quickly how much more I could get done if I had a team that was rallying around the same concept and, and culture, but that base culture has to be there. And if it's not there, then, you know, maybe it's not the right place to be. Yeah, that's, 
that completely what I found as well. Yeah. Um, I'm going to play a little game that I've been playing, which is um, giving you industry terms. You've already used a few. I wanted to use cloud native was one of them. And you give me your definition, you give me your thoughts, whatever. There's no right or wrong answer. The reason I do it is because I think that the, there's too much terminology in the industry, but it still is valuable. And how you decide what terminology to latch on to or not, I think is very fascinating. So the first one kind of piggybacks a little bit on what you were saying before. And I, I just recently, it's become more and more common, this term resilience engineering. I guess this is one of the buzzwords that I don't personally use much myself. Sure, I use resilience as well, but when you put it next to engineering, sounds a bit more fancy. Um, but what it means to me is trying to make a system in such a way that if one component breaks, um, it can easily recover. Uh, that's how I would define it. I don't actually know the official definition if there is one for this. I think that that's pretty much it. I, I think you, you, you make this assumption that things will break and you need to know, okay, what it, what's going to happen? What happens when that breaks? You know, what do we do? What do the technology do? So I think that that's it. One thing that you always have to think of when it comes to with financial services um, and just any payment product is that you always have to design your product in such a way that if absolutely everything fails and by everything i mean even if i don't know if you're using google cloud if google cloud fails you have a way to move everything to a different cloud platform that's something that i've had to worry about as well yeah yeah and i think that that's where the idea of kind of multi-cloud comes from as well or the the need for it all right the next one is from what you said earlier about interest in security and this is fairly obvious but we can expand on it which is devsecops right I, I again think it's just the buzzword. Um, I haven't uh, fully looked into this or like how it's defined or what what you're supposed to do with it, but it just means to me that if you are trying to improve the, the whole communication and development and operations, which is what DevOps is, security, the aspect that is always, always overlooked is something that should be added. So what they did, they just added the sec in the middle to say it's not just development and operations. Security is important, especially in this day and age in which, well, nothing, absolutely nothing is secure. Um, like, right. You have to think about it. Yep. All right. What's my last one? Observability. So when I joined Paybase and when I was building the monitoring system using stuff like um, EFK, so Elasticsearch, Fluentd, and uh, Kibana for log collection, and then Prometheus and Grafana for uh, metric aggregation. Uh -huh. I was calling that observability, but that's not real observability. Um, because, and the reason why it's not real observability is because with all of these tools, you create rules based on what you know can break, but, but there are many things that uh, you're not aware of unless you're watching a system um so with that i just don't know enough about it like the actual what observability is other than yeah. i know that what i used to call it is not it well, so a lot I of think, people call monitoring observability right i think that some people have just replaced the word monitoring for observability yeah, unfortunately it is one of those terms that also combines 
methodology and practice. And we all yeah. want everything to kind of just be practice, but it, it combines the two together. So I don't know if it's fully wrong to call it monitoring. It's like that next layer of monitoring where the systems are so complex, there's no way for you to intuit what happened. And so to trace all of those dependencies and, and so forth, you need a new, a new approach. Um, because there's so many moving parts with the microservices and relating them together and all that stuff. And I, I think if you are also like looking into trace, uh, tracing and intrusion detection, um, on top of log collection and metric aggregation, you are closer to observability, but that's just not something that I'm an expert in. Yeah, so I wonder if you ever, I wonder if you ever actually hit of, of like, full observability. I mean, maybe you could put a percentage on it, but I don't think you, anybody could ever say we're 100% observable platform. Because um, you also at some point have to decide what you're going to measure. And that's a human exactly. decision. Exactly. That's one of the, the tricks with well, monitoring, uh, like, and what logs do you collect and what not. Right. Um, so, so yeah, I think I think you're right. It, it can be I don't know if it's impossible, but it can be ridiculously hard to reach, to say that you're doing observability right. Yeah, I agree. Well, we'll see how that evolves. Well, yeah. Anna, thanks for joining. This was great. Um, I appreciate you joining, and I look forward to seeing you know what you end up doing here in the near future. Thank you very much for having me and for inviting me and for listening to that webinar.